And now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am very pleased to introduce our guest speakers. They are higher education champions, all of them, terrifically accomplished scholars and university leaders. They represent two of our nation's largest and most prestigious universities, and as a Queen's graduate, it's hard for me to say that. <laughs> um, Professor Heather Monroe Bloom has been McGill's university president, uh, the 16th principal, sorry, and vice chancellor for the past 10 years. She has dedicated her career to the advancement of higher education, science, and innovation in Canada and internationally. David Naylor has served as president of the University of Toronto, or U of T, of course, as we call it here, for the past eight years. Um, prior to being president, he served as U of T's Dean of Medicine and Vice Provost for Relations with Healthcare Institutions. This afternoon's moderator is Robert Pritchard, also a former president of the University of Toronto and where he is now the President Emeritus. He's, he currently serves as the chair of the law firm Tories, Metrolinx and the Bank of Montreal. And so uh, without further ado, I welcome Mr. Pritchard and the triumvirate of university presidents to join us on stage. Thanks, Alison. Alison, thank you very much. My voice is not what it should be, but I'll do my best. Alison's going to step in if mine fades too much. <laughs> uh, Heather Monroe Bloom and David Naylor uh, lead our nation's two greatest universities, McGill and Toronto, and for the past decade they've done so brilliantly well. They've been remarkable leaders for their universities eloquent advocates at home, magnificent ambassadors abroad, tireless fundraisers, deeply committed to their faculties and students, champions of research and innovation, skilled administrators, inspiring leaders, and truly amazing all-round individuals. They leave their universities stronger than the ones they inherited, extending the extraordinary records of success of these two wonderful universities. Their sensationally fine records as leaders come, came as no surprise. The past foretold the future, they have been superb in every role they've ever held. It would be a joy for me to spend this full session speaking of their records and their accomplishments. I count them both as colleagues and dear friends, and I revel in their accumulated successes. But we have an even greater treat ahead. By my calculation, this is the first time in the almost 200-year history of each of these two great universities that their leaders have stood down in the same year. And this created the unique opportunity that Allison seized uh, to call to invite them to reflect together on the decade they've served and to speculate on what lies ahead for higher education. Together they are at once the smartest, wisest, most contemporary and most experienced observers of higher education in Canada today. What a delight then to pose a few questions to them and sit back and benefit from their insights. Some questions I will put to both of them, but most I'll pose just to one or the other and, when, and, and asking the other uh, to add his or her perspective if she disagrees with the first answer or thinks there's something important to add. Our only enemy here is time, and so I've asked them to be as to the point uh, as possible, recognizing this is to be a conversation rather than a series of short lectures. We'll gain the most, <laughs> we'll get, we'll gain the most uh, from give and take. Heather and David, thank you. Thank you for doing this. You're wonderful to do it together, and we all salute you for all you have done so brilliantly well. Heather, the first question is to you. My first question is, how are we doing? Um, by international standards, how is Canada doing? 
how are McGill and Toronto doing? McGill and Toronto are recognized globally as excellent universities among the 20 best in the world, impressive by any measure. Beyond your two universities, however, how does Canada stack up in the global quality rankings? Are we getting stronger? Are we getting weaker in the global competition as compared to, say, when you took office or 20 20 years or 10 years ago, uh, what's the trajectory that Canada's on in this area? Should we be pleased to have the two great universities so highly recognized around the world, or should we be concerned as a country we don't have more in the upper box uh, of the great universities of the world? How should we think about this? And I'm going to ask David the same question. Okay, well, responding to your challenge to be short, and it is tough for the three of us, I say, to, uh, to, to do that. <laughs> Let me... <laughs> Let me, let, let me say how delighted I am to be here. And Alison, thank you and the Canadian Club for the, for the opportunity. As Alison uh, implied with her comment, Canada has a, a great system of universities. Uh, it is a differentiated system. There is a university coast to coast, north to south, uh, somewhere for just about anyone who wants to go to university to go to university and pursue their interests. The question of world rankings is particularly important in this now globalized era. When we see country after country around the world from the spectrum of those developing to those developed uh, investing disproportionately in universities with graduate programs and with research intensivity in order to boost the status and impact of their countries on the world stage. It's fantastic that Canada has several universities in the top 100 rankings, whatever ranking system you look at. Uh, we're very proud. I know uh, David feels as I do, enormously proud of our universities in a completely public university system to be positioned where they are, uh, but we cannot be complacent. Are we getting better or worse? I, I think by some measures, Rob, we are gaining ground. Um, we certainly have a lot of programs that are stronger than they were 10 years ago. The configuration of federal support has been helpful in some ways, not so helpful in others. But I think that the biggest challenge here is that other nations are investing really aggressively. And their view is that by having flagship research-intensive universities, along with a differentiated system where all institutions are valued and they all have their niche in the ecosystem, you are able to attract world-class talent, generate disruptive innovations that create whole new industrial sectors, get the best and brightest from around the world not just as faculty members, but as students. And this changing landscape, Brazil, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, India, every nation is doing this, fast rise in Asia. And now, interestingly, Europe is reconfiguring with excellence funds in Germany, new investments in France, and the UK has long had a very selective and differentiated approach. Result. Uh, I think we have to raise our game to stay where we are and have more institutions strong and ideally compete in the years ahead. We can't stand still. David, let me stay with you then, um, because if I were to ask, say, one thing that describes the Canadian ambition in higher education, it is to maximize the percentage of the population coming out of high school that does post-secondary education. We've set high, we have a high level of achievement in this, and we keep raising the bar higher. Is that the right direction for us to go, creating access almost at all cost? Or do we need to rethink 
access as our overwhelming dominant goal as we think about the future in this new competitive, more competitive, more difficult, and more demanding world you speak of. So, Robin, I'm going to sh shamelessly try to dodge that very pointed trade-off, right? I, I hope we don't have to make that trade-off uh, because our baccalaureate participation rates are about average worldwide, and our PhD and master's participation rates are actually well below many, many other countries in the OECD. <coughs> it's college participation where we actually tend to have very, very high uh, rates worldwide. So we either need to rethink what colleges do, given the, the drive for ever more uh, sophisticated skills and credentials to compete globally, or we need to think very hard about differentiating the university system so that we can expand access cost effectively. But bottom line, we need to keep going and growing with more skills for more people and more education, not just skills, which are narrow and time limited, but competencies for more and more of our citizens. Do you think we can deliver this ever increasing access on a lower cost curve so that it doesn't just keep averaging down for the entire system? Are there opportunities, especially with technology, to, to meet what you're acknowledging is a goal, but to do so in a different way than we're doing it now? So there's a whole other discussion to be had about online learning and the role of technology, which I think is, is getting a bit distorted by the way the U.S. market is moving and everyone's getting pulled on the tail. But yes, is the short answer, we should be able to do better with technology. But we should also be able to do better, and Heather's made this argument, I think, more eloquently than anyone, by figuring out what each institution in each sector does and doing it in a nimble and more integrated way. We, we, we don't make the best use of the resources we currently spend, and that worries me. Let me, that's a natural bridge then, Heather, to you, um, and uh, what it's like to be a university president today as an advocate at the provincial level. Uh, you were an outstanding advocate here in Ontario for a decade, and now you've done it again for a decade in Quebec. You now have minority governments in both places. You have the, uh, let me say, distinctive uh, politics of Quebec and universities uh, at present, which from an outsider looks pretty difficult. Um, what's your sense of the possibilities as higher education has become so politicized? Does rational, evidence-based, strong public policy argument of the kind you've been given to for your career, is that still the way forward in a, in a world that <coughs> seems to be driven by populism, the internet, Maple Springs and the like. What's, go what's going on in Quebec and what are you going to do about it and what's your successor going to do? What's, what's going on? All right, the clock, is ticking. the clock is ticking. First of all, let me say that we uh, in both Ontario and Quebec have benefited from extraordinarily visionary leadership over uh, you know, 120 years. But certainly if you go back to the 60s and you think about Jean Lesage in Quebec and you think about John Robarts here in Ontario, I'd add Peter Lockheed in Alberta to that group. There was real um, sense of using post-secondary education for the uh, benefit of the province, for the benefit of the jurisdiction, and as a nation-building tool. Today, sadly, having the two largest university systems in the country, two largest populations of any provinces uh, in the country, uh, both Ontario and Canada have the absolutely lowest expenditure per student in universities. And uh, we clearly have to get at that. I was in Berlin two weeks ago at a policy uh, meeting, 
And uh, it was actually uh, very refreshing because I realized that uh, more of the world's population thinks and acts the way Quebec does uh, than, uh, than uh, much of North America. Um, and, uh, and there are some very <coughs> vibrant and important things happening in Quebec in terms of the public discourse and debate. Evidence-based has to stay a critically important part. Uh, facts count. We wouldn't be professors and academics, researchers, if we didn't believe that facts count. And uh, we may come to this question, I'm not sure, but values, absent results that make life better for the citizens of a province or a country, uh, don't stand for much. We want values along with public interventions that grow the strength of every individual in our place and grow the, um, the health and well-being and economic prosperity of our provinces. Universities have a key role to play in that regard. They're underinvested. Please. When I used to teach medical students, which fortunately for public health no longer happens, <laughs> I would ask them to think about making decisions based on evidence, values, and context. And you can understand individualizing, making the right decision, you've got to think about those elements. Public policy is very similar. Evidence, values, context. The challenge is, very frequently, values get transmuted into ideology, and context, including short-term political pressures, bears in and drives decision-making towards short-term political expediency. So this, this is a tough balance to find. I don't envy our political friends. They're in a contact sport. But I worry, like Heather, that frequently values and context are trumping evidence in making decisions in higher education and other spheres of life. And if I can have five seconds uh -huh. on that, if you think about the difference between the 90s when the three of us worked together and today, the role of the internet and social media has transformed transformed the world of how you make a compelling argument based on evidence. And uh, fiction becomes fact in 30 seconds, and uh, fact gets obliterated. Um, and so it isn't enough to have an evidence-based approach. That worked well in the 90s. I think we have to have parallel ways of engaging the public in understanding what the dynamics are. Net-net, are you more or less optimistic today than when you started as principal about the possibilities of arguing for university policies that would be good for Quebec, its people, and that will allow McGill to remain one of the world's 20 best universities? Well, let me begin, begin by saying that I have enormous confidence in my successor, Suzanne Forche, will be spectacular. Um, and I have uh, had uh, 10 and a half years of the privilege of working with the outstandingly talented students, uh, faculty, admin and support staff, and alumni of McGill. Uh, we've had 200 years of vicissitudes in public policy and expenditures and so forth. We uh, preceded the creation of the country. I'm very optimistic about its future. So you're not, you're as optimistic today about the possibilities for public policy yes. as you were a decade ago? Yes. That's good. That's, yes. A, that's good. How about you, David? I, I, the same question. How, how do you feel about whether the political environment can accommodate the sorts of difficult choices that need to be made to pursue the vision you have? Rob, I think being optimistic is a pathological state for anyone in university administration. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, I am very pleased to echo Heather in saying that given you know, the unbelievable privilege all the smart people, all the energy, dedicated alumni, etc., fantastic benefactors, all the things that make the job so much uh, fun. 
Um, I do remain very optimistic. I will confess, however, that my frustration level, which doesn't mean you lose optimism, my frustration level is at an all-time high, but my optimism is absolutely undimmed, which is why it's time to pass the torch to someone <laughs> who is every bit as optimistic, Merrick Gertler, and far more talented, but who is not frustrated. That's good timing. That's a good distinction, the optimism. That's a, that's, a, that's a very good Let me Let me take you to the federal level, David, because... I've detected in both you and Heather watching your advocacy over the last number of years that you'd, you'd evolve to a view that if we really want to keep Canada's top universities among the best in the world, the government of Canada had to speak up more, had to play a larger role, and we needed almost federal universities, of which your two would be two, but not necessarily the only ones. Is that right, that, that the, the counterbalance to these provincial forces is you see a larger role for the government of Canada? And if that's right, if I'm interpreting correctly, what exactly is it the government of Canada should do to better project Canada's place in the world of higher education and innovation? What are we failing to do that you would like to see them do? First off, credit where it's due, the Governor General has been advocating for exactly this type of change in thinking for about 20 years, wearing different hats. And, and second, let's be clear, the last 20 years we've also had a whole bunch of programs that have tried to reward competitive excellence in research and graduate studies. We've also had provinces variably support the core educational mission. So it's, it's a playing field that's had lots of gains, but also some areas where the incentives haven't been aligned. So I think you have to look to the federal government. They, they fund most of the research in the country. The Constitution's clear. You know, education's a provincial jurisdiction. On the other hand, the federal government can come in by supporting researchers, supporting graduate students who are in the research stream. There's lots of room for the federal government to come in. And if they can align things around excellence, competitive excellence, then we are in a much better position. Some type of excellence funding that is wide open, competitive, adjudicated. You know, let's, let's be clear, no entitlements. But I think we believe that if this is competitive and open and there are fair metrics and they're transparent, the best institutions will rise and will be funded to compete with our peers globally. And right now, around the world, all kinds of jurisdictions are, are saying, they're not picking winners, they're creating the conditions for competition for excellence so their strongest institutions can be supported to fight on the global stage. And I think we need to do this, and we need to encourage the government of Canada to step up and take that position. You share that view? 110%. And. Uh, Look, I, I think it'd be wrong to give the to leave the impression that we feel like victims. Um, uh, as I said, we've got a great system <coughs> of universities in uh, in Canada, and we need that. Um, but programs have to be there to support the different missions of different universities to allow them to do what they do best. And those have come least on the side of universities that do what our two universities do. And there are many others, as you've said, that have the same mission as our university. Let me take you to a completely different area, Heather, where both you and David have enjoyed uh, remarkable success, and that's uh, private giving to, you, to the universities. You embarked on an amazingly ambitious development program for McGill right into the teeth of the global financial crisis, and despite that, 
well, you won't tell me, in fact, how much money McGill has raised yet. You want to keep it a secret until May or June, and I understand that. Uh, you said $750 million. I'll bet anybody in the room it'll be a billion dollars uh, before Heather uh, wraps up the campaign. That's an astonishing accomplishment. Even David Johnson, who set the bar 25 years ago, would ha- I think would salute uh, that accomplishment uh, as, as unimaginable as recently as 25 years ago um, uh, at, at McGill. It's a great accomplishment. David's done the same, as you know. David set an even more ambitious goal, a couple of billion dollars, is at a billion and a quarter already, um, and is heading... I just point out that the University of Toronto is twice as big as McGill. <laughs> I knew there would come a point when, when the United Front would break down. I, I'm heartbroken. We'll soon be debating which is the greater of the two. So don't. But, but David set an extraordinary goal, and again, it's gone very well. Do these amazing totals that many other universities can only dream of raising suggest the route forward is not provincial or federal support, but private universities. Is that is that the way we're going to actually compete, is to have a handful of universities that can do what you two have done so brilliantly well, to be the private universities, the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons of the United States. Is that where McGill and Toronto's future have to lie? I don't actually believe there are great private universities today. If you look at MIT, it gets over half of its revenues out of Washington. Um, uh, so it has higher tuition fees. It has a bigger endowment. It has a long history, Harvard, uh, Princeton being other examples of that. But other than uh, really uh, religiously focused or culturally focused institutions, there are no comprehensive universities uh, that are private. I think it is a huge mistake to have philanthropy substitute for sustained, effective, predictable levels of government uh, investment. In a country where the population is as small as ours and the geography is big, we need an absolute tandem collaboration of, uh, of philanthropy, of provincial and federal government, relations, uh, government investments, and then I'd say as well of uh, universities putting the resources they get to the most effective use consistent with their mission. Do you want to add anything? Uh, just that there is a certain mythology about the, the privates in the U.S., and that is, you know, this full-ride approach that creates great access. By all, by all means, true, but the number of students at these great private universities who come from less advantaged backgrounds is really very small. So these are wonderful anecdotes, right? Someone from tough background goes to Harvard, gets a massive package of support, doesn't pay a cent, travels, studies abroad, all supported, fantastic. Becomes governor general. (laughs) (laughs) Or president of the United States, right? That's the other path we see. However, (laughs) the reality is the big springboards to equality of opportunity, to to fairness and advancement based on merit and talent and ambition, those springboards are the great public universities of the U.S. way more than the privates which educate this proportion of the population. We're fortunate in this country to have a system where public universities have developed, been supported and can serve as those springboards, and I think we should support it more strongly rather than abandoning it. But if I could just give a stark uh, comparison about the level of investment, Berkeley University, arguably one of the best public universities in the world in a uh, system that was uh, visionary, is uh, pleading right now that it is at the absolute depths 
of uh, support of any kind, uh, that its quality is challenged. It has roughly the same number of students as McGill does. It has the same mission, but no medical school, and we know medical education is expensive. They get roughly a billion dollars a year more in revenues than McGill does. So just to yep. put that in focus. Let me go to... So uh, that makes us very proud of what we do oh, on, the, uh, count, on the revenues that we've count, got. Count, count me in on that pride. Um, let me go, David, to tuition policy. Uh, you and Heather are both being strong advocates of vigorous financial aid, ensuring any student who's qualified can attend a university, and somewhat higher tuition than has historically been the case to make sure we have the resources to close this gap to, to allow us to provide a great education. That's been the mantra that both of you have advocated for a decade. And in recent weeks, we've had Quebec basically retreat on the idea of increasing tuition for the foreseeable future. And Ontario's followed suit in the last few days, saying that tuition can only go up by 3% a year. So to some extent, yet again, your core idea is being repudiated um, uh, in, in this area. At the same time, in the US, which has had the opposite, they've been, had the freedom, there's now a growing rebellion against the high tuition and the high student debt. And that the notion that there's a feeling in the United States, it's gotten out of control, that, that people are spending too much money, there's an arms race among universities, and it's not turned out to be a good policy. So as you come to the end of your decade, are you having any second thoughts? Is there more to this idea of low tuition or free tuition than you and Heather, and I might say myself, have given any credit to the idea over the past 20 years? Uh, nope. Um, <laughs> they, uh, That's reassuring for me. <laughs> I, I guess I should amplify. Um, the, uh, the amount of indebtedness for students in this country, university students, has actually finally turned downwards in the last year. So it's exactly at that moment that we have this worry about Tuition. There's something wrong with that, back to evidence, values, and circumstances. I can only speak for the Ontario system where I know that, in general, if you receive the support from the Ontario Student Assistance Plan, that it is likely that you pay, on average, about half of the posted tuition fees because of the combination not only of government aid, but internal bursaries that derive from philanthropy, but also by taking those tuition fees and redistributing them to underwrite those from less advantaged backgrounds. So the high tuition, high aid model actually enables universities to be responsive, to remain open. <coughs> and what we see worldwide is very consistent, totally counterintuitive, right? Back to the problem of uh, a world of memes and sound bites that Heather flagged. But what we see worldwide is where tuitions are higher and student aid is higher, participation rates are higher, and equality of opportunity is sustained. It's tough to sell on the doorstep, I get that. But I don't think because it's tough to sell, we should stop telling the truth. A novel concept sometimes, but the truth is, what's being done is bad public policy. If I could add to David's uh, excellent comments, um, the, uh, the, the fact is we don't want American tuition rates. There's actually no other country in the world that has those tuition rates across the whole swath of the of the country, we want effective levels of tuition. Um, the reality is 40% of uh, university graduates today graduate with no debt. And of the remainder, 
um, uh, roughly a third have under $12,000 in debt, and the average is about $23,000. We had, on average, $5,000, $6,000 in debt when we graduated in the 70s. Just for a dollar, nothing's changed. Uh, what is very different is that we, uh, we, we actually talked about this this morning, that we, we all uh, thought that debt was something that was uh, worth investing in. And if you just look at the economic downturn that we've just had uh, in the, in the post-08-09 <coughs> uh, period, 700,000 new jobs were created for university grads and 300,000 lost in Canada for those who had no degree. Heather, let me turn back to you on another topic, international students and the internationalization of universities. Mm -hmm. Among Canadian universities, McGill has the highest portion of its student body uh, drawn from outside <coughs> Canada. Um, and it's a point of which you're very improperly uh, proud. Uh, recently, the AUCC had a task force on this subject, uh, and it ended with a call for attracting many more foreign students to Canada. I've been reading reviews of that report, though, and people are saying, why do you want more students? If your problem you is have t too few dollars <coughs> with which to educate them, why do, you, why do you want to further dilute the resources available by attracting many more students to Canada. So is, you've had great experience with having a significant international student mm -hmm. body. Is the right track for Canada at this time to have even more? Or is, it, is, is, it, is that contingent upon adequate <coughs> national provincial support for those additional students before you would advocate increasing the representation of international students. Well, again, our Governor General has been the most powerful advocate for the importance of the mobility of Canadians in a globalized society and for opening up Canada to, uh, to the rest of the world. Our greatest challenge as a country is our demo demographic deficit and our aging population. Uh, we have, as a country, grown uh, since uh, uh, we were created on the basis of great immigrants coming to the country and building it. And uh, we've been different than other countries in not funding collaborative research internationally and in not understanding what an asset it is to have graduates who go out around the world. And I would say McGill is unique in this regard because it's always had a very big um, uh, international student body. If there's a global health epidemic, um, we've got physicians around the world. Who, we have scientists around the world who can play into that right away. If there's a security crisis, we have people around the world who can play. So there's a great return um, McGill brings $5.2 billion a year in revenues into Quebec, just as an example, and uh, that's on over 20% of our students being uh, full-time international students. Um, we've been out of the game. We must get into the game. And I'm not of the view that international students should be welcome because they're a cash cow. I actually think that's not a smart public policy. But I think, as with domestic students, those who can pay an effective share should do it. And those who can't should be welcome because they're going to enrich the country in any event. One, one of the, a second point on international. Um, a number of leading world universities have decided to replicate themselves in other geographies. Yeah. NYU is opening campuses elsewhere, mm -hmm. taking the powerful brand and yeah. Rather than asking those students to come to them, is taking the university to the, stu to the students mm -hmm. in other parts of the world and creating uh, new learning opportunities. As Principal McGill, you must have considered whether to build McGill Middle East or McGill Asia or McGill mm -hmm. wh whatever. It doesn't appear you've chosen to do it yet. Right. Um, 
how do you think about that question when you have a great brand like McGill? You've got a challenging circumstance domestically, um, uh, if I can use a euphemistic word, uh, being uh, why doesn't it make sense for McGill to diversify away from Quebec by establishing multiple campuses? Well, I've chosen not to do that. My team and the university, our Board of Governors, have chosen not to do that, although we're out creating you know, uh, global research uh, partnerships and educational partnerships on a regular basis. Um, we are a public university system, and that's where I go back to your, your uh, assumption from your, your prior question, that I don't think creating infrastructure abroad, creating physical campuses abroad is the way to go. But collaborating here and in countries, particularly countries, you know, you can think of Brazil, India, China, that are natural partners to us, of course, Europe, um, is a way of building those ties on talent and well-developed uh, uh, knowledge and, and education that will strengthen them and strengthen us. And so that's the model we've pursued. Interesting. David, let me turn to what I think is the most uh, pressing contemporary issue for higher education, and that's technological disruption, uh, the digital revolution. Its digital revolution has created magnificent new companies around the world and in, in, in seconds, it's, it's, it's destroyed other industries, it's disintermediated uh, many activities, it's profoundly changing the world. In higher education, we've been told for decades, technology is going to change it. When we built the Scarborough College at U of T, there was televisions in every classroom because television was going to change higher education. Well, it turned out it didn't. The televisions are still there, but they aren't, they're never turned on. Um, uh, it, it's, it, so we've been told it's going to change the world, but it hasn't. Is it different this time? Is the, is, is the power of the internet, is the power, the power of telecommunications, the digitalization, the social media, are we actually at the cusp of a genuinely new era? And if so, what does it mean for great universities like yours? And what does it mean for higher education at large? Is it threat? Is it possibility? Is it the end of the University of Toronto? Or is it the beginning of a new, great, but somewhat different era? What's, what's going on? What are you doing about it? And I'm going to ask Heather to add her comments as well. First off, I think this is a different time. This, this, is, this is a real inflection point. And when you talk to leaders of higher education across North America, you get the same response. Everyone is thinking this through. Everyone's trying to figure out how to respond. The challenge right now is that I think, as I hinted earlier, some, some <coughs> of the thinking about the role of all these technological platforms, online courses in particular, so-called MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, the thinking is being led a bit by our friends in the private institutions in the US. So how do they see MOOCs? Well, let's give away access to a non-credit online presentation by one of our top teachers, some brilliant scholar who's great in the classroom, good for reputation and brand, highlights the weaknesses of the competition. Since you're not giving any credit, you don't need to charge for it. If someone wants to try to use it for credit, you might license it, but probably at a confiscatory price. And what you're really still holding on to is the allure of your home base, the experience on campus, the personalized learning, the mahogany paneled residences, if you're at a couple of those uh, universities, the social network you buy when you go there. And that's distorting the way we're responding. If you think about it, we should be able, if we can find the right way to give credit and to use this technology, to actually bend the cost curve. 
What we're doing already, certainly U of T is in on this in a big way, is trying to do more of what are called inverted classroom experiences, where you use online learning, so you get the information out with the greatest communicator, but you personalize the in-class experience, right? Classes turn into more give and take and, and giant tutorials, change of orientation, so-called inversion. And we're also, uh, along with I think every other uh, public university, waiting to see how this shakes down and thinking about how we can deploy all of this online learning capability to move the cost curve. Right now it's, it's a really fluid situation, Rob. Way too early to figure out how the economics are going to work, but I'll tell you, it is different. It will be a revolution, and it's a very fluid and exciting playing field. Huge potential for improving access, but things will change. The last thing is you said, well, the University of Toronto will still be here. The University of Toronto will be here 800 years from now in some form of that, I'm fairly sure. Thank you. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> Heather, you're, don't repeat what David said. Because what, what, I, know, I know you've done, you're doing a lot of the same things. You're both in edX and, and um, you're not in Coursera. David's gone into Coursera. So there's some, some difference as well. What's your view of this? Well, let, let me say there is a, as, as only, only time I'll reinforce what David said, there is a transformation of pedagogy um, taking place. And each university has to think about how is that going to be expressed in your own institution. And I continue to believe that in um, the research-intensive comprehensive university, the physical experience of being shoulder to shoulder with other students and with professors is key. One of the things I've noticed over the time of my career is that we now have a generation of students, and it'll never change going forward, who have lived their lives never wired as opposed to wired. And for them, you know, if your major social contact comes through whatever you're holding in your hand, the need to be with people in real time interacting, working out problems, struggling through some of these debates and, and uh, difficult issues is really, really important. Um, but it is uh, a learning mode. Does it make any sense to make all this stuff free? As I come from the newspaper industry, it hasn't served the newspaper industry very well to make everything free. Is it, why, why, why do you want to charge the students on campus more and more, but say anybody not on campus can have it for free? I don't quite get that. So I, I think that's back to the distorting influence of this being driven by a lot of the brilliant private universities of the U.S. I think it will change, that the publics will find their niche and will use this revolution to change the cost curve. But like Heather, I do worry that you, you can never substitute for the experience of, of the personal experience of interaction with a mentor, a, a prof, fellow students. You know, I worry about a generation where it's the video games being played, you're losing, turn it off and reboot. It's consequence free, right? Just start over. The real world isn't like that. <coughs> you're in a classroom debating with 24 other smart undergraduates and you say something that's not very persuasive and you get gently pounded you go away and you think about how you talk to other people and what you have to say for yourself. The universe needs in-person interaction. And our, the next generation has to, at some point, unplug and be part of that kind of lived experience that is essential to leadership and growth. We have seven minutes, three questions left. The first one to both of you. All three are to both of you, but you'll, I mean, that means we have two minutes for each question. Your successors have been appointed. They're both fantastic people. In point form, 
what are the two biggest challenges facing your successor? And what are the two for you, David? Well, I think we've touched on the themes, which is really to um, sustain the mission of our universities. I'll talk about McGill, uh, which has been uh, such a powerful mission for 200 years, and to express it in ways um, that reflect the new realities that we're also talking about. Um, uh, that's one. I think, uh, and this is not uh, just saying it, I think Suzanne Fortier, a two-time McGill grad, a great scientist by international standards, someone who's had a, uh, an academic administrative career as well that is superb and who's now led uh, one of our three great science councils is going to be well equipped to do the rest. I, I think it's uh, finding the narrative and, and uh, telling it. It's a communications issue that is integral to leadership, right? Leadership is narrative in so many ways. And like Heather, I have huge confidence in my successor who has a real gift in that regard. The, the other challenge, I think, is patience. Uh, it is a very uh, turbulent time. There's a lot of cross-currents. Social <coughs> media, uh, huge force, and not always for the good, I might add. And uh, minority governments, instability, social cross-currents. And you need uh, skin like a rhinoceros and the patience of Job to uh, see these missions through. Uh, you know, I think we had relatively um, uh, turbulent times, uh, but it's not going to get any easier. And uh, I think narrative communications is one bundle, and then patience uh, and forbearance is the other bundle. You've both had tough jobs for the past decade, but I think your spouses, uh, Ilsa and Len, um, have had tougher jobs, both highly accomplished uh, professionals in their own right. Um, uh, they've had to share the load with both of you, but had none of the glory uh, that comes with uh, carrying the load. How important were they in this? How, what's, what's the essential spousal contribution to allowing you, David, and you, uh, Heather, to do these jobs? Well. Let me go back to a previous theme of patience and forbearance, <laughs> which in my case has been going on for about 27 years. This is, so um, I, I think it's, it's known that uh, Ilza Trierenecht is the chief executive of Mars, which is the huge convergence center here. So we've had uh, a very interesting partnership with a whole set of new dimensions. and. Uh, her ability to tolerate sharing the house and a life with the University of Toronto has been uh, remarkable. And uh, I look forward to being uh, more engaged with looking after the family dog in my next life. And Heather, how about you and Lenny? Um, look, I think for me personally, uh, having Len as my partner since we were uh, teenagers, has made me who I am. I can't even begin to imagine uh, having done anything that I've done uh, without him by my side. Our marriage contract was a joke a day, <laughs> and uh, his ability to really stand back and uh, always have a perspective that is encouraging and supportive uh, has been fundamental, and I'd say my daughter Sydney's a big part of that too. What's given you the greatest single joy in the job? You, Heather, and then you, David. The people. Day and yeah, night, no absolutely. matter what's going on, fantastic people can interact. Uh, you know, the old saying, it's a, it's a cliche, the cause and the company. Unbelievable cause, something you can believe in every day. Yeah. 
seeing people transform, seeing great ideas, and then the company, just the most unbelievable group of people, the alumni network, uh, the supporters, the chance to have conversations with so many interesting people every day. Every day there's another conversation. You go home and you say to your long-suffering spouse, I have to tell you about this conversation I had. It's just staggering privilege. The, the other thing is we learn every minute yeah. of the day, and that is enormously invigorating. Yeah. Well, we'd like to learn one more thing. I'll get shot if I don't ask this last question um, of both of you, and I want an answer. Um, <laughs> you, you've had arguably the two best jobs in the country for a decade. You're, you're young. Um, uh, you're healthy. You're supremely talented. You're experienced at home and abroad. You're connected with leaders around the world. You're interested in virtually everything. Beyond a good night's sleep um, and a vacation, what lies ahead for each of you over the next decade? David, what are you going to do? Well, uh, first off, I'm so pleased you said that I was young. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually 114, and I, I want you to know that I'm starting a nutritional supplements business. I'm here with Rob's endorsement as a living testament to the power of nutritional supplements. Anyone who wants to buy can, can make my fortune. <laughs> and what else are you going to do? Um, I, I'm still are you going uh, abroad. Are you going to stay in Canada? What's what's the future? I, I need to think about all that, and uh, for now, uh, just assemble options. I, uh, I I think what I would say is that a portfolio life is appealing. A life where you can do research. I'm very interested in the mind-brain behavior nexus. I love to work with graduate students and postdocs again. Uh, life where you can do some service to the private sector, do some volunteer work. So I'm, I'm looking for a portfolio of activities. Open to offers. <laughs> and Heather, what's your plan? Ditto. Ditto. <laughs> Guess a little more. No, seriously. I, I, uh, I'm going to Stanford on leave in the year ahead and coming back to Canada and uh, intellectual life, public policy life, the strength and well-being of our provinces and uh, Canada remain at the center of my heart, and we'll see how it expresses itself over time. Could that's, I say that's one good, that's, word? That's good, news, that's good news for both, for all of us, those answers, which have you both here in Canada continue to contribute at a very healthy level. With Allison, you I'd like told to, me, I'd like to, well, you can't know, there's no seconds, time. 30 there's seconds, 30 no seconds, 30 seconds. <laughs> Rob we're, did, we're, I just want to say the, about our great moderator uh, that Rob's been uh, just an extraordinary leader. Everything we've learned uh, came from him. He'll say everything he learned came from the Governor General. But Rob, I want to just on behalf of both of us say what a pleasure and thank you for inviting us to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, I never thought I would have the privilege of introducing three of Canada's great uh, university presidents to the podium, and now I have the privilege of introducing a fourth. Um, and I would like to invite His Excellency, the Right Honourable David Johnston, Governor General of Canada, just to say a few remarks. Commissioner Augustine, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, First of all, I want to acknowledge a guest here, John Turner. John, would you just raise your hand? 
No person has loved Canada more than John Turner and done more to act in the love. Thank you, John. You know, this is a, uh, a remarkable, even epic, historic occasion. Why do I say this? <clears throat> no hyperbole. Never has so much talent been gathered on three chairs here than Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> I promise... I promise you no hyperbole. Um, Rob, Heather, and David are the, the three outstanding educational leaders of our time. And I know North America reasonably well. I don't know too much beyond that. But I would say in a North American context, the three of them would be identified as truly extraordinary leaders who have helped, helped to shape our society and whose contributions will truly be enduring. Christopher Wren was once asked, what is my legacy? He said, look around you. His legacy was physical. Theirs is intellectual and social. And there will be gatherings of Canadian clubs across this country in the decades to come. And the mark of David and Heather and Rob will still be there. Let me just say a little bit more about them, and then I'll pass on something that I could continue for such a long time. Rob, an inspirational innovator. Rob taught us all how to bring the excellence aspiration of some of those great private institutions that we talked about and put it into the public university context. He um, taught us how to bring the community into the university. Who owns the university? Well, nobody owns the university, but in the very best sense, the community is the trustee, the steward of the university. That's one of Rob's many singular contributions. David, David is a, a brilliant manager of complexity. And one of the reasons for that is he has a superb analytical capacity. And that analytical capacity permits him to separate forests and trees. And the others who've watched him with admiration have tried very much to, to learn those skills and to practice them in our own institution. Uh, he has done so much, not only for his own university, but for the entire cause of higher education. When I think of Heather, I would say courageous and bold. John Kennedy once defined courage as grace under pressure. I think Heather has had the most challenging university leadership job in North America, when you think of the external forces that she has dealt with. And the courage and the boldness and the grace with which she has conducted herself and left a very good institution, substantially better than when she inherited it, is something for the ages. Thank you to all three of you. These are truly extraordinary times for educators. We lived in the midst of many revolutions. Digital communications enable us to gather, store, and share information to an extent never imagined. It's estimated that we now generate and store online 2.5 exabytes of computer data every day. That means, now we understand what exabytes are, that means that every two days we're uploading more data than has been printed in all of human history. As a result, it's estimated that over the course of the next 40 years, science will create more knowledge than has been created in the history of the human species. L'apprentissage se déroule à un rythme très rapide et cela pose des défis pour les éducateurs et pour les établissements d'enseignement.
N'oublions pas, cependant, que notre objectif demeure inchangé. Utilise notre savoir et notre sagesse pour améliorer la condition humaine. En tant que gouverneur général, j'ai lancé un défi aux Canadiens, une sorte d'appel au devoir visant à créer une nation plus avertie et bienveillante. À mesure que nous approchons du 150e anniversaire de la Confédération en 2017. A smart and caring nation, our goal for our 150th anniversary, and both adjectives are important, smart and caring. Let me conclude these remarks with, with five global drivers of change identified by that great Canadian, Kevin Lynch, former clerk of the Privy Council, current vice chair of BMO Financial Group. Pervasive globalization, global competitiveness and the innovation imperative, a hyperconnected world, major demographic shifts, and a, a decline in public trust in leadership, a decline in public trust in leadership. Let me very briefly, to end this remarkable intellectual feast that we've had with Rob and Heather and David, just comment on a couple of examples of how these drivers apply to us in the university enterprise. Globalization, we see the growing internationalization of learning. We had wonderful comments. I was with President Dilma in Brazil about four months ago, and she at that meeting determined that 12,000 Brazilian students would come to Canada on the Sciences Without Borders program, 12,000. And she said to me, the reason I'm giving you priority, the US has 16,000, we have 12,000, UK 10,000, is I'm so impressed with Canadian education and I'm impressed with Canadian young people. Your universities are accessible, they're high quality, they're safe, your communities are tolerant, they're multicultural. Canada is the best place for young Brazilians to learn English or French because they not only learn what they do in the classroom, but they have the context of supportive communities and families. But most of all, she said, I love the work ethic and the values of your Canadian young people, and that's why I want young Brazilians to be exposed to them. The, the second, global competitiveness and the innovation imperative. We live in a wonderful time in history. I've given one or two examples, Rob and David and Heather have, with change so constant, knowledge so constant. Let me just say that 90% of what we learn, we know about the human brain we've learned in the last 20 years, and in the last 10 years, we've decoded the human genome. I spent this last weekend with uh, our number five daughter uh, in Boston, who finished a PhD on how the mind learns. She has a modest learning disability. And her work is applying the lessons that we know about how the mind learns differently than we learned, we knew 20 or 30 years ago, to new strategies, to new ways of learning. It's a remarkable opportunity for all of us. Our hyper-connected world, we mentioned online learning. This is a fantastic opportunity for, for universities because now data is available anywhere in the world at the flick of the switch. And our challenge, of course, is to move from data to information to knowledge and with any luck, the wisdom. And of course, that's the university business. And just to put that challenge in context, the printing press revolutionized Western Europe from the 16th century on. It was a backward society compared to the world of Islam and China and India up to that point of time. The printing press vaulted ahead and it wasn't just the technological revolution of Johannes Gutenberg, it was a social revolution led by Martin Luther. 
and it was the environmental and governmental revolution that led, was led by Frederick the Elector of Saxony that provided the shelter for Luther to translate the Bible in his castle, otherwise wouldn't have permitted it. But that printing press revolutionized how we learn and how Western Europe prospered, and it vaulted ahead. South Koreans had a printing press in uh, the year 200 AD. The Chinese had it when Marco Polo arrived there in the 13th century, but they didn't have the other components, the Martins and the Fredericks, etc. Western Europe put that together, and the printing press spread. It took 300 years, three centuries, for it to reach a majority of the population of Western Europe. The internet has reached a majority of the world in a decade. And that's the wonderful opportunity and challenge we have before us. Major demographic shifts contributing to a growing need, among other things, to match skills to learning. In our own country, we have uh, people without jobs and jobs without people. And we see that demographic shift playing out all over the world, enormous challenges for us to respond to. And then the decline of trust. In education, it manifests itself as a decline in deference where the role of the teacher evolves from that of the sage on the stage to that of the enabler, the person who truly does teach critical thinking. And students quite properly demand a greater say in their education. But trust and the truth which university stands for is the fundamental element and how we continue our search for trust clothed in that sense of trust that is placed in us. And I'd simply say, as Kevin Lynch said so eloquently, uh, trust comes in on foot, and it goes out in a Ferrari. <laughs> These and other trends are having profound impacts on post-secondary education, just as the developments that gave rise to them are transforming the world at large. But as leading educators in Canada, we know that this is where both our opportunity and our challenge reside. And as a middle power, this is a fantastic opportunity for us because knowledge now is the fundamental feature of sovereignty. Which nation can develop its talent and can advance the understanding that that talent has to all of its people and then use that as the powerful engine to enhance the human condition? In a very real sense, the future vitality of our country hinges upon our ability to rise to these challenges and to seize these opportunities. I mentioned that our ultimate goal to improve the human condition remains unchanged. Let me suggest also that our commitment as Canadians, our unique commitment as Canadians to equality of opportunity and excellence must remain firmly in mind. And as I so often say, our challenge is to be sure that those two concepts, equality of opportunity and excellence, are mutually reinforcing and not mutually exclusive. Equality of opportunity, every student, every person have the opportunity to exceed and indeed surpass the boundaries of their talent. Excellence. Canadian students, researchers, learning institutions, it seeds themselves and move our ranking up to the world's best. So it's not an either or situation, but both and. Equality and excellence, twin strengths of our learning. They should reinforce each other through the careful and considered application of effort and resources. Let me leave you on this wonderful Canadian club luncheon with two of my favorite lines from Shaw, some people see things as they are and wonder why. We dream of things that ought to be and ask why not. Merci.
Thank you. Thank you, Your Excellency, for those touching uh, and very heartfelt remarks and for your own personal tireless leadership on behalf of universities over your, over your many incarnations. Thank you. Now, I always say my very favorite Canadian club lunches are those where I learn something and where I have a lot of fun. And today certainly uh, was one of those. Uh, Rob, thank you. When I ran into you on the corner of York and Bay about four months ago and or whenever it was, and we cooked up this little idea, I thought, well, this will be interesting to see if we can make this work, and here we are. So thank you, Rob, for that and for your, uh, for your moderation today. And David and Heather, thank you both uh, for coming. I thought to myself, there is no way we will get these schedules aligned, and it's just been such a privilege. Um, congratulations to both of you for such wonderful careers, and I know we're just, you're, just, you're not finished yet, as Rob said, um, but at the helm of uh, two of Canada's greatest universities, and thank you for being here today. Uh, I consider it a great privilege to be the graduate of a Canadian university, and perhaps I did not choose the right one. Um, but I thank all of you for, uh, for your leadership in making sure that uh, my generation and those coming next have uh, the opportunities uh, that, uh, that you have created for all of us. So thank you. Um, I would also like once again to thank our event sponsors, RBC and McCarthy Tetro, for their support of this very important subject and this very important day. Thank you. And now this formally concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV, if you'd like to see it again, uh, in the days to come. And we are very thankful and grateful to Rogers and 680 News for their continuing coverage of Canadian club events. Um, thank you to all of you in this audience for joining us. Um, I would now uh, please like to ask everyone to rise, as you are able, for the departure of His Excellency, the Right Honourable David Johnston, Governor General of Canada. Thank you. And thank you all. Have a wonderful afternoon, and our meeting is now adjourned.